podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to the Wisdom Cricket Weekly Podcast. We've got lots in store for you on today's show. We'll be previewing the final test of the India-England series. We're looking at how the England women's side are doing in New Zealand. We've got a pre-recorded interview with Tammy Beaumont, who is now the highest ranked women's ODI batter on the planet. And we'll be having a quick look at what's going on elsewhere in the PSL, the Australia-New Zealand series and much more. I'm Yaz Rana, and with me today is the managing editor of Wisdom.com, Ben Gardner, the editor-in-chief of Wisdom Cricket Monthly, Phil Walker, and the magazine editor of Wisdom Cricket Monthly, Joe Harmon. Starting on the test match, we've not had a huge amount of England team news ahead of the fourth test, other than that Chris Wokes has gone home as part of the rest and rotation policy. Ben Folks has said that England, having trained at the ground, are expecting a similar surface to the one we had in the third test match. Joe, if it is played on something similar to what we've seen in the last two tests, do England have a chance? Um, I would love to say yes. Uh, <laughs> I don't really feel like they, they do at this point, but then perhaps I'm still suffering the, the aftershocks of the, of the last match. Um, it's, it's worth remembering that at the start of this series, if, if England had been offered 2-1 uh, down with one to play, they'd have absolutely snapped your hand off. Uh, and actually, we'd have probably said at the start of the series that even a 3-1 defeat wouldn't have been too bad from England's perspective, given India's record at home. Um, but it's hard to see, given that India will prepare a very similar pitch, given that England's batsmen struggled quite as bad as they did in the last test and the test before that, to see them come back from here would be... Uh, I mean, we talked about the first test win being England's greatest away win, possibly. I think they had to win this test and, that, and, and this would have to trump that. Um, yeah, and also India have everything to play for as well, the World Test Championship final on the line. I don't see them letting up. So it's... It's a real, real hard task for England here. Um, I think India are massive, massive favourites. Yeah, I, I, I'd agree with, with basically all of that. But I do think that the point that has been made, I think, on this podcast by others before, that that sort of pitch does just make the game a bit more of a lottery and a bit more of a shootout. That does still hold, even though that England have found themselves on the wrong end of a couple in a row. Like, I think that Joe Root, Johnny Bairst is a very good player of spin, Ben Folks, as we know, uh, Zach Crawley, who batted brilliant in the last test, they're all capable of hitting that kind of match-changing 70, which in a sort of 150 plays, 180 sort of game can be absolutely crucial. They just haven't done it so far. Like in the first test, you had England being 77 for two, and actually that could have turned into 200, which would have been a match-defining total in that game, but that didn't happen. But I think that they're, like, that they should still have hope even in, but like, that sort of service could be positive in a way, even though it hasn't been so far, I think. I mean, maybe that's being very, very optimistic. And I do agree that India are very heavy favourites, but I can just about see how England could snatch one on this sort of surface, I guess. Well, I suppose if you're looking for reasons to be positive, the fact that England did manage to get to, what, 70 for two in that last test match, if they had managed to get to, say, 220, 250, then they were absolutely right in the game, probably leading the game. So that wasn't beyond them in that first test. But it, it just feels, we said right at the start of this, this whole winter before England went to Sri Lanka, that Joe Root was going to have, a, a, have to have a massive winter for England to get any success. And it feels like, what, five tests in, it feels even more like that, that he's really one of very few England batsmen who are capable of playing a, a match-turning innings in these kind of conditions. 
Uh, hard to argue with, mo- with much of that, really. I think Ben's point that there is a, a crapshoot element to this game is probably worth re-emphasising. Um, I have a weird feeling that the pitch in a kind of alpha-like statement from, from India will not be quite as wild as the one was last week. I just have a feeling. Um, I might be wrong. England will be saying to themselves, Rohit Sharma's been the difference between the two teams with the bat so far. No one else has really got many. Kohli got a, be- a beautiful 70 in the first test match, but hasn't got many since. Um, Shubman Gill's the same. Rahane's not really been at the races. Pant has, you know, suggested here and there, but not really uh, evoked any kind of permanence. So there will be, there will be reasons to be cautiously chipper about being able to bowl India out twice and bowl India out relatively cheaply twice, if the pitch does turn. The question is, obviously, where are they going to find runs? They've now batted across five innings and not even got close to 200 in five innings straight. I think 160-something is their highest effort across five innings. So, obviously, that is pretty damning. That goes without saying. If you take out Root's brilliance across the whole winter, then I think England's have managed five fifties across five test matches across the whole of their batting lineup. So no one's in form as such, but there is a randomness to this series. Um, and uh, I think, I, I think as Ben says, somebody has to play out their skin, but if somebody plays the innings of their life and, you know, it, Stokes played really well, for example, in the second innings in the last test match, but before, yeah, as ever getting one that was a bit too good for him, but, he got to 25-30 and the tempo of that innings was excellent. Now, if, if he can double up on that, if Crawley could push on to 70 and if Root can play, you know, yet another defining innings of what's been an extraordinary winter for him personally, then there are, there are logical ways that you can say that they can, they can scrap this one out. They have no more than a puncher's chance. They never really did at the, in, at the start of the series. Um, but this has been a very peculiar and memorable for, for good and bad reasons, three test matches. I don't think this final test match just sort of ebbs away uh, predictably. I think there will be one last blow up uh, and it will probably fall to India, but it may yet fall to England. What would be really nice is, is to have a, a proper match. And I, I, don't mean, I don't mean that we haven't seen some great cricket in this series because we have, but we haven't had a, a proper contest yet. We haven't had a game that's really felt live going going deep into that match. And it would be great, particularly with what Channel 4 have done to get this series, if, if whichever way it goes, whoever you support, if we could actually get a proper game to finish off the series where both sides are in it, come, well, if we can stretch it to day three, maybe, maybe even day four, uh, that would just be, that would be great to watch. Um, and I think even Indian fans might, might fancy that as well, because I think as much as they must love rolling England in two days, most fans who have any support would like to see a, a proper match go, go, going deep into, into at least day four. No, no question. Let's not do the pitch thing. I don't think we're planning to anyway. But in all of the, the bluster and nonsense uh, and hot air that's been spouted and spewed over the last week or two, that's, that's the only real question to answer. What does it leave the game looking like for the people that it's there for? i.e. the fans, the fans across the board, not just the fans in one province or another, but the fans across the game. This is a marquee series. This is a huge landmark series. So, so let's try and honour it with a great game of cricket. It doesn't matter who wins. It really doesn't. But the game doesn't win if it's done in five and a bit sessions. Uh, and 
only the most one-eyed, parochial, myopic uh, fanboys can wake up after, after two days of cricket and be happy that it's all done and dusted. We just want something to, uh, to honour the beauty of this game, to see, to see this peculiar, eccentric series off. If you just look through the numbers of the two teams' batsmen this series, there's barely any of them have got runs. Sharma and Root apart, really. They all average uh, under 32, 33. Um, and that's what I think has been really been lacking this series, like really good batsmanship, like a, a day where you're like, oh, that was a really good inning. Since the first test, that's only really happened off Rohit Sharma's bat. Um, so I think that's just been a very obvious thing that we've been missing from the series. Just want to, just want to add, um, I really hope that come the return leg, and it's probably worth remembering that this is kind of building up to half time in this peculiar nine test match epic between these two teams. I really do hope that come the summer, we do see Kohli... Sharma batting all afternoon at Lords, strumming it around on a on a relatively flat one, um, posting a target, posting a total that England can then can then respond to, and that we have some real proper strong epic Test matches this summer coming up. We didn't we we, we got echoes of that when they were here last time round. Obviously, Coley's innings at Edgbaston is one of the great innings ever played, but that still felt like. Uh, it was a lone crusade by him. It would be really good to see some humdinger test matches that go four and a half and even five days, even a draw. Do you remember them? Even a draw at some point this summer. I would welcome that. Um, I, I think it would be an important statement to make uh, and it would be good for the game in the long term. We've talked, we've talked a fair bit this series about how difficult it is to read a pitch and a lot has been made of how England didn't get that right in the third test. And I don't think India did either, actually. They bowled pace for quite a lot. You know, we're talking about England's good start in the first innings. I think a big reason for that is because India bowled a lot of pace. Um, so if this is a big if, this is more hypothetical, but Jim Amos asks, if the pitch is like it was for the, for the third test, should England consider picking just two spinners, eight batsmen and a wicketkeeper? Do you know what? My mate Ronnie, who's actually a very astute uh, observer of the game, WhatsApped us after that game and said essentially that two spinners, Archer, eight batsmen, eight, nine batsmen, and let's just see where we get to. Uh, and his tongue was only partially in his cheek. <laughs> in, in, in the end, um, England won't get that funky, obviously. Uh, but there is, there is an argument to, to, to load the batting up a little bit more. I mean, you know, Ben Folkes is a, you know, he's a stoic kind of old-fashioned accumulator who plays spin nicely, but him at seven and then a chasm thereafter is a problem. It's a problem for the, for the side. It's all very well saying, well, the top order's got to get the runs, but as we've seen in test matches of late, it's often that down the pipe that, that, that solves the problem. We saw Ashwin get that 100 in the, in the second test match. <clears throat> we've seen Pant come out and do similar things as well. There is, there is some degree of logic to it. Um, uh, so what we say Rory, Rory Burns you're, you're back in but you're batting at nine <laughs> yeah, yeah. Best will definitely come back in um, you know they've held their hands up on that one and, and so he will come back in and you imagine that him and Leach with Root and I know that Root's back is, is dicky but he's also a pretty useful uh, third spinner they will get through 80% of the work no doubt about it irrespective of what the pitch does initially that, that will be the way that the game will have to play out yeah, I'm, I'm not expecting um, I'm not expecting England to do this in the in the deciding test of a high-profile series. But I, I would genuinely love to see a county do it at Taunton or something like that. A few years ago, Worcestershire got really funky in a game. I think it was a, a green top 
150 paid 150 then Joe Leach just came out on number five as a pinch hitter basically in search of quick runs um, we need to see more of that Ben you had your hand up uh, yeah well I think first of all if, if you could guarantee the pitch is going to play like that it's quite a big if it's probably the main thing I think that as you know no, no one actually quite knew how that third test pitch was going to play until you know halfway through the first session the first day even but I think what, what England could, or in, in my opinion, should consider, I don't think they will, uh, but it's just playing a third spinner, third proper spinner, probably Matt Parkinson, in my opinion. I think that would be kind of the ideal scenario. If he's the, if he's the third spinner in a three-man attack and you've got you know, another quick and you've got a proper rounder in Stokes and you've got a very good part-timer in Joe Root, that kind of takes the pressure off and means that you can use him as he's kind of supposed to be used as like a, you know, a proper partnership breaker, kind of say, you know, just give it a rip and see what happens. And if not, no huge harm done because we've got loads of other bowlers who can bowl for a long time. I'd, I'd really like to see that. And I think that could potentially be a, a you know, the, the ideal way for him to make a start. But I, I don't know they will, but I'd, I'd like to see it. But, but how, how could they play three spinners in, in that setup? How, how would that work? Three spinners, one quick, and then Stokes and Root as your sort of fill-ins as well. So, so go back to Sri Lanka 2018-19 time and, and just... Just throw the ball to Jimmy initially and hope that he might winkle one or two out and then just hope for the best with the spinners. Essentially, yeah. yeah. Well, it's, it's, t- it's telling that we've not bothered, perhaps it's just fatigue, but we've not bothered to debate even who the seamers should be. And the newspapers don't seem to be doing so either. Maybe because it's just become a bit of a lottery by this stage, but also because it feels like it doesn't matter all that much. Sorry, I, w- I wonder if having had their time again, well, for those last three tests, especially the last two, whether they'd have gone for White, who's obviously now gone home, just because he is sort of a, a more genuine batting option. That was, you know, and, and in a way, that's actually quite a big factor in that last game was the fact that, like, you know, it was partly the lack of security for the top eight, but, you know, it was Archer at number eight, which meant they had kind of no chance. Like, once they were 90 for five, they were going to be, uh, or 90 for six, they were going to be all out pretty soon after. Whereas if you have someone who you know you can bat with, then that just changes the kind of complexion of a, the batting is at that point and you feel like, okay, maybe we can sort of scrap away up to 150 rather than it's going to be all over really soon. Joe, Joe what, what, what is your prediction for what it's worth for the, for the bowling attack? Um, well, so best comes back in. I would go back to the bowling attack that played the first test match. So Archer Anderson, best leech with Stokes. Although I do have to say, I think what Ben says has a lot of logic to it. I could easily see playing Parkinson over Archer would have some value. Uh, it just feels so unlikely that it's, it's difficult to kind of even consider it. But I, I do think there's some, some logic behind it. Yeah, I would echo that as well, though. I think, I think the way that Archer bowled in that first test match, albeit on that particular track, I think that, will, that should sway it. And that would be my, my pick as well. It was interesting, though, to see Stokes really struggle with the ball in that last test match. So you are going in there effectively with a four-man attack as things stand. I mean, admittedly, he can always turn it on uh, through willpower as much as anything else. But he's not bowling very much at all at the moment. Um, Any number of reasons, I guess, for that, not least the conditions. Uh, Yeah, so so it's going to be two spinners taking a lot of the work, in which which case I would be strongly uh, leaning towards playing Archer. Archer first and Anderson alongside him personally because... He still possesses that, that potential. He still possesses that moment where he can blow somebody away. Yeah, I don't really have a strong opinion on the, on the team attack. We did a, a thing on Wisdom.com where we predicted our 11s or 
wrote down the 11s we wanted to see and I, I marginally went for Stone ahead of Archer. He bowled really well in the second test match, um, but completely see what you're saying. Um, I wonder if I'm reading too much into this, but England haven't actually named a squad for the fourth test and they did do for the third test. And I wonder if that means they're more likely to, to use one of the re- reserve guys. They haven't restricted themselves to a group of just 15 or 16. Maybe I am just reading too much into that. But anyway, we, we talked a lot last week about um, how England can better prepare themselves for, for test matches in spinning conditions. And we've got a question on this or more of a suggestion, really. So interested to see what your thoughts are. So a friend of the show, Scott Oliver, says, it's an idea to improve England's production of spinners uh, and, and their batters so they can play spin better. Pick a venue outside county's traditional home grounds. I'll medibize it. All counties play two home and two away matches there each year as well as more outgrounds. What do you think, Ben? Yeah, well, I think, I think it, it's, it's time for English cricket to get funky in, some, in one way or another, whether it's that, whether it's Phil wrote a very good piece of wisdom.com this week, which had a couple of funky suggestions at the end. One, not, not quite as, as out there as that, but one was sort of a, uh, having a, a spin substitute option so that uh, teams could bring in a spinner and they could just be bowling on that last day, essentially. That, um, was yeah quite good or possibly just a way to play more counter cricket in the middle of the summer would be to have the championship alongside the hundred which would be controversial but would also I mean because you'd have you know some of England's prospective test players will be playing in the hundred you know, you've got your likes of Joe Clark Matt Parkinson will be there but you know the next Jack Leach Jack Leach would, was not going to get a hundred contract Dom Sibley for example so you would get players being able to test themselves kind of away from that in the in the height of summer so I think that both those options uh, have something. What, what I'd suggest, I mean, if, if you were going to do that, I guess the way to do it would be to probably do it outside of England altogether, maybe start the season or end the season with a sort of a, probably start the season, you don't want to end the season like that, with like a sort of mini festival in Abu Dhabi maybe, where you're allowed to sort of properly get into the pitches uh, and have like a, you know, all teams play one game against another uh, in the course of a week across sort of like how many grounds they have out there. There's about five grounds they have out there, yes, which could all be used, I guess. Maybe that's something, but uh, it would be yeah, very difficult logistically, uh, obviously controversial, but I don't, I, th- I think that that's the kind of thinking we should be seeing because otherwise England are just never going to get better at playing and bowling spin and it's only going to get worse as, you know, more stuff comes into cram the county, the, the county championship into, you know, May and April and September. Uh, so, yeah. I, I think something outlandish like Scott's idea or kind of what Ben's suggesting is, is, is kind of not that far wide of the mark, really, because I'm a bit sceptical of this idea that we just play more championship games in the middle of summer. Spinners get to bowl a bit more and suddenly English batsmen are great at playing high-quality spin. Like, that is all. I agree that all those things should happen, but I'm still not convinced if that was in place the last couple of weeks would have been any different, just because the conditions are just so wildly different to what we would see in county cricket, even if spinners were encouraged. I mean, there would obviously be, you'd expect some improvement, but I don't think it's just comparing apples and pears, really. So I think it does it, it require some sort of uh, extreme adaptations of the kind that, that Scott and, and Ben are, um, are talking about. And it'd be fun and it would get people interested and it would get people engaged. And, and that's, again, um, half the battle, really. There was an interesting article in The Telegraph that went through a few suggestions and one of them was based off something that's been happening in the uh, West Indies first-class competition recently. So a few years ago, a really, really high percentage of wickets to fall went to spin. Um, And as a result, they brought in a rule that you got decimal point level bonus points for 
certain number of wickets taken by seam, so you're incentivized to bowl more more seamers. And that has led to a steady increase in the number of wickets taken by seam in the domestic competitions there over the last five years. Um, that damages the integrity of the tournament a little bit. But yeah, I, I agree with what you're saying. I, I don't think we're that far off ending up with something reasonably odd that would have been written off completely a few years ago. Phil, what's your moment of the week? Well, it's probably related to, to what we're talking about, really. Um, the ECB confirmed the full-time appointments uh, for Chris Silverwood's support uh, coaching staff. Uh, it was no great surprise to hear that Triscothic was confirmed as so-called elite batting coach. He's been involved with the team now on and off for a year or two. Uh, he's a cracker of a bloke, as everybody knows, and you know knows batting inside out. Um, he's a smart appointment, I would say. John Lewis, um, the former Gloucester seamer, has been confirmed as the pace bowling coach. Uh, and Jeetan Patel, who's been working with the spinners for the again for a year or so now, has also been confirmed as elite spin bowling coach. But the thing that particularly interested me, mainly because I know him uh, and like him, and once once hit him for six, Richard Dawson, coach at Gloucester, who is a deeply impressive bloke, um, one of the youngest uh, coaches around the county game, who brought Gloucester up, of course, in twenty whatever, whatever twenty nineteen, um, on a small budget. And they've overachieved in uh, one-day cricket as well. He's a very, very cool, calm, relaxed, sort of mysterious bloke, I suppose, Richard Dawson. But anyway, he, he knows the game and he has a, 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 real, a real knack with young players in particular. Um, and he spoke very uh, evocatively when I went down to Bristol to interview him a year or two ago about the, the joy and pleasure that he gets from bringing players through. And he spoke as well... Uh, in the round regarding what um, county cricket is for. And he was, he was sitting in a stand alongside, you know, uh, paying members of Gloucestershire uh, County Cricket Club and yet recognised that there was a bigger play at work, that there was a, 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 more in, a bigger picture in which to contribute. And that picture is the England cricket team. So his appointment um, as, in effect, lead, bringing through... Uh, well, she, he is head of pathway development but he's taken on the role the role with England he'll be overseeing the Young Lions program he'll be overseeing the under 19s program he was the coach when England's Lions team did very well in Australia last summer or last winter rather or maybe even the winter before now I lose track in Covid times but the the winter when Daniel Lawrence made a lot of runs and England beat Australia's reserves as well in a in a test match uh, at the MCG he oversaw that, that very successful tour, and now he's going to be overseeing bringing young players through. Now, one of the things that they said, which is particularly important, is that bringing spin bowlers through is a particular, is a, quote, real priority now for the coaching system. Uh, Richard Dawson's a former England off spinner. Jean Patel is now a full-time spin coach with the England setup. Their job uh, will be to identify young spinners and try their damnedest to get them more overs under their belt, as, as discussed, more significant overs in professional cricket, uh, and to try and change the complexion of the game as much as possible. He's a very, very good appointment as this elite pathway coach, I would say. So I'm trying to, trying to get a better understanding of what the pathway is and who the players Dawson will work with will be. So how old will these young spinners be? Are they, play, are they players that we'll probably already have heard of or players lower down the chain? Um, a bit of both, but there'll be 
the, the idea is that it's as joined up as possible. And Mo Bobat, who oversees the whole coaching system of the ECB, um, is very big on that. So you, you're identifying spinners at 14, 15, 16, whose names you don't yet know, who are then taken um, into the centralised system in effect. Uh, and Dawson's particular remit will be to run the under-19s team as well as the Young Lions programme. So it will be his, his job to nurture talent from mid-teens and even, even possibly even earlier than that, but to get it as joined up as possible. Now, one thing to add about spin bowling in particular, as everybody knows, is that the, the properties of, of, of being a good spinner change as you get older through, that, through those teenage years. Your body changes, your trajectory changes, the angle changes. Uh, a lot of players suffer with yips issues as they're coming through. That's a, that's a common concern. Um, but the, the logic is good, I think. The, the, the system needs to back and support these young talents a bit more than, than it has done in the past. Uh, and the more joined up it is, the more coherent it is, the better. Someone like Dawson, who is very, very logical, sensible, balanced kind of bloke, who is steeped in bowling spin, um, is the right bloke for the job for me. I think it's a good appointment and I'm delighted for him on a personal level as well. A few weeks ago, I spoke to Jake Lintett, who is at Warwickshire and he's good mates of Jack Leach, came through some, the Somerset Academy at similar times. Both of them were let go. Both of them got back into county cricket when they, let, when they were slightly older. Leach, when he was in his early 20s, Lintett, he's 26 or so. Lintett made the point that he felt with spin more than any other discipline that um, Spinners just, some spinners will just develop quite a lot later than that. So you need a pathway, a separate pathway for spinners who might leave the game professionally at least at 18, 19, who then develop in their early 20s and get back into it. He, he felt there, were, there were, wasn't enough, um, there weren't enough opportunities for players like that to come back into it. And, you know, in, in, look at who number one spinner is at the moment. Jack Leach is someone who came into the professional game reasonably late. Um, <laughs> Moeen Ali before him, was predominantly a batsman, I uh, kind of learned it. So I don't know, I kind of wonder that that all sounds really good, but in practice, you might, there, there are still gaps there. I don't know what you think. Yeah, and before those guys that you mentioned as well, Graham Swan, I mean, would have probably presumably left that talent pathway, um, having had his chance of England and then played a lot of county cricket. Again, he would have been someone who doesn't necessarily fall into, into what we're talking about now. Just, just one thing to add, um, English cricket is quite a joined-up world. Uh, it talks to, it, to itself a lot. Um, someone like Dawson carries immense respect, and he will be in discussions with county coaches as well, constantly about players that are coming through, players that could be given a chance and so on. And he's the kind of bloke who, who doesn't throw it around too much. He'll be quietly respected within the game. Um, and... This statement I thought was quite significant, really, by the ECB. This was an official statement and a quote from Mo Bobat. Richard's specialist coaching experience with spin bowlers was a, was a further attraction and he will support Jeetan Patel in an area that is a real priority for us. That kind of message, if that can be disseminated a little bit more loudly than it has been up to now, then we could begin to see at least the starting point of a change of attitudes and a change of culture which has been discussed ad nauseum. But again, it's, it's the conversation of now and it's a necessary one. So for the ECB to, to be making these appointments in the first place, but also to be ramming that point home 
in the in the context of what we've seen over the last couple of weeks, I think is in its in its way, I think is that is quite significant. It will take a hell of a lot to persuade coaches and, and captains of county clubs and in brackets, CEOs and groundsmen, etc. It will take a hell of a lot to, to say to them, look, dry this pitch up a little bit if you can, bring spinners through a little bit more than we have done before. It's it will take a lot. But we have to be having these conversations a little bit more loudly than we have done before. And the appointment of characters like this is, is, is a small step in the right direction, I think. Moving on to the England women's side, they beat New Zealand 2-1 in the ODI series there and went 1-0 up overnight after the first T20i. Tammy Beaumont scored half centuries in all three ODIs and Nat Skiver and Catherine Brunt were both in the wickets. I spoke to Beaumont before the T20i and I think uh, the most interesting thing that she said was that although she's not played a whole lot of cricket in New Zealand, she thinks there's, no, there's more movement in the air there than anywhere else, which she reckons brings Skiver into the game more as a frontline banker for 10 overs. In a T20i, England bowled New Zealand out for 96. Brunt, Skiver, Eccleston and Glenn all taking twofers. Uh, England chased that down reasonably comfortably. Um, before we get to that Beaumont interview, a question from Billy Johnson uh, could Sophie Eccleston go down as the greatest England women's bowler of all time and across both men's and women's cricket, England's leading spin bowler of all time? Joe? Yeah, absolutely. She could. I mean, I think she's got Catherine Brunt in her sights already. And yes, Eccleston's still only 21. It feels like she's been around forever. Uh, she never goes for any runs. She, uh, she seems to be taking more wickets now than she has done previously. Her and Sarah Glenn have formed a, a really potent partnership and that whoever they play, they just don't seem to get them away. And given that England don't have kind of weak links elsewhere in their attack, it's, it's a really formidable five, five strong attack they've come up with. So, yeah, I think Eccleston, given her career trajectory already, uh, I think she's well on course to, to certainly be the, um, the leading England female bowler of all time. In terms of comparing men and women, it's difficult because you would generally judge... Uh, a spinner by how many test wickets they've taken and she's not going to take many test wickets in her career unless there's a dramatic change in in the way women's cricket is is structured um, but certainly as as a white ball bowler she's going to be right up there with Adil Rashid, Graham Swan um, and she's just got so many years ahead of her as well. I think um, England's attack is looking really good we talked about it a little bit last week real strength and depth in the pace department and then with Eccleston and Glenn, uh, as you mentioned, that is a really, really strong attack. I guess like, the one thing that, the one hole really, is that they don't have as much batting depth, like the likes of Danny Wyatt, Lauren Winfield-Hill, Fran Wilson, haven't quite taken the step up uh, in terms of consistency, at least, that some of the others have. And they are still quite reliant on three or four of their batters quite a lot of the time. Do you think that's broadly fair? Yeah, I, th- I think the, uh, the the one thing that I'm most interested about from this T20i series is seeing how Sophia Donkey goes. If she does get a bat, she sort of got a thanks for coming award in the first game, uh, having been recalled. But just in, in that T20 World Cup campaign uh, in 2018, not the last one, uh, she just kind of looked like she kind of got uh, what was required of that role that she was in that finisher's role, and also that she just like wasn't at all bored by the. Uh, occasion there were sort of a couple of games where she came in with like England really up against it and just was able to kind of negotiate all that pressure and she's and she, you know she was in form last year in the uh, both for uh, the England uh, A side and in the Rachel Hayhoe Flint Trophy so I, th- I think she is one that they should look at as 
being the person because because yeah you, you're right that there's those players that get to kick on and it's been so long since England have actually had a new player in the top. I think I think Lauren Winfield Hill is the last player they had debut who's gone on to like have any sort of career as a batsman in the top six. So that's one that's interesting for me. I guess I guess Siver's utility in New Zealand conditions is especially relevant because that's obviously where the World Cup's going to be played. So uh, that could give England an option to get a bit more batting depth in. Equally, if someone does kick on, it allows England just that much more flexibility in their bowling attack to sort of play maybe someone like an Izzy Wong even. If she breaks into it, they can know that like they've got this, uh, you know, ten, uh, up to 10 overs, but equally it could be four or five overs of pure pace up their sleeves for if the game requires it. Um, so that could potentially be a, a huge factor for it. But yeah, I'd fascinate to see how Ducky goes. The issue around batting depth is is a fair one, but it has to be contextualised by the the quiet revolution that's taking place uh, this winter and rolling into next summer and thereafter that, as as we know, 41 new domestic female pros have been training all winter. There'll be people within those within that 41 whose names are not well known, not even well known to this panel, who come the, come the summer will be very well known by the end of it. And, and of all the all the percolations of this year coming up, this is, this to me is the most interesting of the lot, really. We will have a, a bunch of individuals who, have, who will have struggled to juggle cricket with the pressures of work and so on and so on. Well, they would have now had a full winter of intense training as professional cricketers. That is hugely significant for the game. And we will see quite quickly that talent pool spread, uh, stretch and spread and, and then the conversations, which tend to revolve around 14, 15 players, will, will, be, will be multiplied quite quickly uh, after this summer. And, and, and it will change the whole, look, the whole look of it. It will change the complexion of the, of the female game forevermore. Well, here is that interview with Beaumont. Um, I got the email through about her topping the world rankings for the first time whilst we were recording. But annoyingly, I didn't see it until we finished the interview. We're delighted to be joined over Zoom by Tammy Beaumont, who's in New Zealand in between the ODI and T20i series. Uh, first of all, Tammy, welcome to the show. Uh, what's it been like touring New Zealand of all places? They, I know they've brought in restrictions in the last few days, but you couldn't have been in a more normal part of the world recently. Yeah, I think it's been um, pretty much the best place to tour at the moment during COVID. Obviously, until a couple of, a couple of weeks ago, it was completely COVID-free and yeah, experiencing a little bit of normal life outside the cricket has just been amazing. Obviously, having had the bubble in Derby and over the summer, um, you know, you've kind of got a taste of what a lot of other teams are having to do and, and what the England men are having to cope with in India at the moment. So, yeah, very grateful to be in New Zealand and also very grateful to be playing some cricket. Before the series started, did you manage to get out and about and kind of live life as a normal person for a little bit? Yeah, we had a, um, about 10 days in Queenstown. So we did our, our two-week quarantine in, in a hotel, quite strict protocols and everything like that. Uh, but once we got the all clear, we headed to Queenstown. And yeah, we really enjoyed it, really um, got out and about. Um, a few of us did a, a hike or two. We even got a little helicopter trip. It was like we were on a little holiday for a little bit while we were obviously in and around the training and working hard in the gym and everything. But um, yeah, it was very nice to just have that that kind of week transition from you know, being locked down for probably the best part of a year to actually enjoying a bit of freedom and, and getting that sort of out of our system a little bit to then really knuckle down and play some good cricket. I think a lot of people would have seen on social media the, the photos and videos of uh, you training at Queenstown. It's a pretty remarkable venue with the mountains in the background and next to the airport as well. Yeah, it was amazing. Um, 
Queenstown's a beautiful city or town, I'm not quite sure. Um, but um, yeah, I think Sophie Eccleston and Danny Wyatt absolutely love planes. So they were very distracted at training and it was their favourite cricket ground ever. Um, probably up there for one of mine. I think it was a pretty special place to play. And, you know, I think it's only kind of a club ground down there. So it's an incredible facility and it was amazing kind of to, to kick off there. Going to the cricket, how, how enjoyable was it getting back? Uh, playing for England after a four or five month gap between series, obviously with the BBL in the middle of that. Yeah, it was really nice. And obviously probably uh, suit ODI cricket a little bit more. So the fact we hadn't played that for sort of 14 months uh, was really kind of comforting for me to get back to the one I enjoy the most really. And um, yeah, it was just great to get back out there with the girls. And, you know, we've only got a year to our World Cup now. So it's kind of getting real and it's starting to, you know, get back into that and, really sort of put our best foot forward in in that format. And um, yeah, it was just great to kind of get back out there and, and play some cricket because, you know, it's been a bit lean on the old cricket uh, fixtures for the last year or so. Yeah, so on that, what is it about ODI cricket that you, I guess, prefer? I think it's been over a year since you last played in ODI and you're straight back into the runs. Is it just the, the tempo that you find easier to get back into? Yeah, I think, um, I think in ODI cricket, it's I find it more of a mental game than kind of anything else. And... So for me, it's all about, yeah, batting long and particularly as an opening batter, like, you know, you, you can have 50 overs to bat. So, you know, for me, it's, I like to challenge myself to be got out and, you know, the bowlers have to get me out instead of me give my wicket away. Whereas I think in T20 cricket, you've, you've got to go like the parameters kind of make you be more attacking and give more chances. Whereas I think um, for me as a personality, that kind of aspect that you could try and play a perfect innings and not give a chance um, and still do kind of the right thing for the team by by building in innings and, and batting as long as possible, I think really suits my kind of personality and the way I like to play. You're in the runs in all three games. How do you feel about your game at the moment? I think your ODI career averages ticked over 45, which is always nice. Yeah, and I mean, the first half of my career, I think I averaged about 15. So um, it's certainly gone up and up in the last few years, which is nice. Um, I think, yeah, for me, it's always just about contributing towards the team wins and to be there at the end um, of the innings in two games, I think is kind of probably a first for me really. And um, obviously we didn't get the win in, in that last game, but actually it was a very kind of special innings for me knowing that, um, you know, just cause it got a bit hard, I would still stuck it out and um, yeah, kind of practicing that kind of skill of just making sure that I kind of do the job for as long as possible was uh, really pleasing for me. Um, and you mentioned it's not that long until the world cup now. I think it's actually, nearly exactly a year to the day that the World Cup gets underway in New Zealand. So beating New Zealand in New Zealand is a good way to start that year. Um, you were part of the side that won in 2017. How do you feel this side compares to how that side was a year out of the tournament? Yeah, it feels quite similar, really. I think, um, you know, back then there was probably a lot of us that were a little bit untested in in um, international cricket. You know, um, the likes of myself, Lauren Winfield, um, like Nat Siver had kind of just come through as a senior player. And um, yeah, it's kind of really interesting time now. We're, you know, four years on, well, five years on it will be, um, and kind of the senior players and the kind of cement around the team. But we've got the likes of sort of Sophie Eccleston, Sarah Glenn, Freya Davis, um, all of those that haven't actually played that much. So yeah, it kind of feels a similar time that we we are a little bit kind of untested again in a way like we're we are a bit of a fresh group there's some fresh faces that haven't done world cup cricket uh 50 over cricket before so um yeah it feels kind of like there's a good journey to go on and there's sort of still a lot of learning and and um improvement to go um but yeah certainly a good feeling with this group really 
Um, and then finally, in terms of conditions in New Zealand, Seam played a fairly big role in the series. Nat Skiver in particular was exceptional. Is it fair to say that that's genuinely the case in New Zealand? And if so, how exciting is it that there's like real competition for places in the bowling department at the moment? Yeah, I think um, I did tour New Zealand back in 2012, but I can't particularly remember what the wickets were like. But I do think they're a little bit English, if not a little bit more, a little bit more bounce and maybe a little bit more pace at times. So, um, yeah, I think it's good that we've got such uh, depth in our seam department. And yeah, the way Nat Siv has been bowling in the big bash the last couple of years um, has been brilliant. So, you know, she really seems to suit bowling in places like Australia and here in New Zealand. So, yeah, it's really great that she's kind of really stepping up as like a genuine all-rounder with, she's always been an amazing batter at four, but um, to really kind of take those really crucial overs and, and kind of probably bowl 10, up to 10 overs each game, I think it's going to be massive for us to have that kind of four-seamer. Well, that was Tammy Beaumont. Ben, there was a moment on Twitter after the third test that created quite a lot of noise. Um, do you want to explain what happened and what you made of it? Yeah, I don't want to spend too long on it, not least because it's already been discussed ad nauseum almost. But uh, so in England's second innings, the third innings of the game, I think we were about six wickets down at the time. Alex Hartley, who is a World Cup winner, is currently doing punditry for BT Sport on in Women's Series in New Zealand, tweeted, nice of the England boys to get this test match finished just for England women play tonight, followed by a series of clap emojis, and then said, catch the game on BT Sport. Uh, uh, a while after the game, uh, so at the time it kind of, you know, well, there wasn't too much fuss. Uh, a while after the game, Rory Burns quite tweeted it, saying, very disappointing actually, considering all the boys do to support the women's game. Uh, and that was deleted long after he so that he tweeted that quite late at night India time uh, so I guess possibly he felt he, he, he thought that tweet had come out after England had lost which is what it seems to be to custom actually it came out when it was clear the game was going to finish in two days but not before but not when it was absolutely certain Ben Duckett uh, also said something a couple of other county cricketers as well Sam Patel I think Chris Rushworth might have said something and then since then uh, Alex Hartley's original tweet has kind of been leapt on by a huge number of, I guess, mostly uh, male cricket fans, sort of a range of sort of a personal abuse of her, abuse of the women's game, saying, why would we ever want to watch it? That sort of thing, etc. And she's since tweeted uh, about the sort of not so nice messages she's received saying, remember, there's always a human on the other side uh, reading what you're saying. Maybe there's not too much we made of it. I mean, it's just a, you know, this is just Twitter. It's, you know, maybe this is part of the course. But I think... For me, I think it's, there's a consideration when you're in a position like Burns and Duckett and there are these power imbalances between the men's and women's game uh, to think about what the impact's going to be of your tweets. And I think the manner of their responses, which was sort of like a quoted tweet, which put it out publicly to all their followers rather than a reply to Hartley, you know, direct message to Hartley kind of left her at the mercy of lots of fans to pile on her, which is why it's had this impact afterwards. Um, from my point of view, I know other people feel differently. Uh, I didn't see anything wrong with Hartley's tweets, considering, you know, this is kind of the brand that she's sort of building. It's, you know, it's a, a, she, she makes these kind of jokes on her podcast with Kate Cross. She is now a broadcaster in her own right. Uh, she was tweeting very supportingly of England throughout the, the test match, sort of jokingly suggested that Root might be better than Ashwin, uh, that sort of thing. And it felt to me like a bit of gallows humour after a disappointing passage of play, rather than someone sort of sticking the boot in, especially when, you know, she wasn't, she, she didn't tag any players, she didn't tag England cricket or anything like that. So it felt like 
a joke to her audience, which was then taken as something more. I've, if you've not already, I very much recommend Ben's piece on it on wisdom.com. It's very good. It's been shared quite a lot. Um, just search wisdom.com, Hartley Burns to find it. Joe, what's your moment of the week? Um, so my moment, well, actually, I suppose it's, it's in an hour's time. Uh, Rishi Sunak will be announcing his budget. Uh, so we don't know all the fine detail yet. But what we do know is that included within it will be uh, a 300 million summer sports recovery package, uh, a significant chunk of which will be going towards cricket, which is obviously both welcome and necessary. Uh, we know the ECB announced last September that the game had lost 100 million due to the pandemic and the final figure is likely to be double that uh, like pretty much every industry sport recreation in this country it's it's desperately needed support and that was emphasized a few days ago when Kent announced their financial results for 2020 so they received an extra 600,000 last year from UCB uh, through the new TV deal with Sky and then extra grants in place because of the pandemic um, but despite that Kent announced a deficit of 217,000 and a drop in income from all other areas of nearly two million pounds uh, other counties will inevitably be reporting similar losses in, in the next few weeks. Um, so that hopefully a full schedule of cricket this summer and fans returning from May onwards and this additional support from the government can keep the counties ticking along. And I do think there'll be a lot of sports fans desperate to watch some live sport this summer. And it's a great chance for cricket to grab hold of some of those, those new supporters. But I found it interesting, we, we, we produce among all the various other bits and bobs in cricket we do. We produce the Cricketers Who's Who book each year. So I spent the last week or so kind of proofing pages and trawling through squad lists. And it's encouraging to see that the kind of exodus of players from the county game that some of us feared hasn't really materialised as far as I can tell. Obviously, a few players have been let go as they are every winter, but it doesn't seem like more than usual to me. Uh, instead, I think what we're seeing is counties being much more circumspect in Signing overseas players and, and the closing of the coal pack loophole has, has provided a lot of counties with an opportunity to save some cash too. Uh, and prioritising kind of young homegrown talent is kind of surely the, the right and sustainable course of action at the moment, perhaps at any time, but certainly now. And, and counties seem to be following that. Um, and I think that the PCA, the, the counties and the players themselves deserve a lot of credit for the fact that the situation isn't more dire than it, than it is because and then more players haven't been rela uh, released. Um, Phil did a piece for Wisdom Cricket Monthly a couple of months back talking to Daryl Mitchell, who's the outgoing PCA chairman, and um, Rob Lynch, who's the chief exec there. Um, and in that piece, it came up that around 3.8 million has been saved through voluntary salary reductions and uh, relinquishing a percentage of prize money last summer. So if you think that money has obviously helped hugely, and I think it's, there's a real sense that the game has clubbed together and they focused on the bigger picture and made sure that that people, clubs, players aren't left behind. And hopefully now we're going to start beginning to turn a corner. And whilst a huge amount of damage has been done, hopefully it's repairable. Just to, just to add to that, the, the big date in people's heads is June 21, isn't it? June 21 is when the government have uh, penciled in, probably with a, with a very light uh, H pencil, uh, the return of... of full-scale crowds to sporting events. Um, the blast, which is obviously the cash cow of counties, um, even now, folks, even now in Hundredland, uh, begins on June the 10th. So 11 days before that, that, that key, key date in the, in the government's diary. Um, I've heard that 
there will be a push to try and um, bring that forward with regards to cricket, and that there will be a big push for test events from 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 April, if not by May, and that there will be uh, a drive to try and get those early fixtures um, with as many fans in as possible. It may well be that it will be reduced numbers or 25%, which is what's, what's being earmarked from May onwards. Um, or it may be that they can lobby, lobby the government and try and get a few more in. Um, but can't emphasise it enough, every single day counts now for these counties. Every day that they don't get people in is, is one day nearer to real problems financially. Um, all being well, uh, We'll get crowds in by midsummer at the very latest, and we'll have the the vast majority of one-day cricket played this summer um, with crowds in. And obviously, the the one-day cup follows, and the hundred follows after the T20 stuff gets going, before the T20 stuff returns at the end of the season to, to be rounded up. So the vast vast majority of pajama cricket at the moment will be covered by by fans. Um, we just cross our fingers that those dates can be can be at least honoured, and that things don't go don't go backwards uh, in this, this ongoing saga because the counties need it. It is really existential stuff now for some of them. I think the fans need it too. It's been a long time since everyone's been in the stadium in a full crowd, etc. My moment of the week is actually fan related. Um, it was in the PSL. It was a really good match between Karachi and Lahore, who are two of the better sides in that competition. Um, and there's a moment at the start of the second innings of the game where um, Amir had already taken one wicket in the opening over um, and he was kind of cheering the crowd on trying to get them to cheer louder and louder running in with the crowd uh, full volume he, he clean bowls Joe Denley uh, for a second wicket in that opening over and the crowd went even more crazy um, it was absolutely brilliant great game as well by the way uh, some interesting moments there was a spectacular Denley-esque drop off Shaheen early in the first over of the game um, Shaheen also got Baba Azam out clean bowled with a, with a lovely delivery and then put his arm around Baba as Baba was walking off which I'm not too sure what Baba would have thought about that um, and Shaheen also gave Amir a bit of a send off uh, when he got him out at the end of that innings as well um, so a very good game of cricket and I'm really enjoying the PSL this year more so than previous years lots of high scores but also bowlers doing very uh, a lot of young bowlers who I've not heard of before doing very well um, so an exciting as ever quite unpredictable tournament yeah, there was a game yesterday, and I think their team are doing pretty badly, but Dale Stain was part of a bowling trio with Mohammed Hasnain and Nassim Shah, and you won't get many bowling trios where Dale Stain is the slowest of the three, which I think he would be at the moment. And uh, Paul Sterling, the Irishman, was just carving them all out of the ground. It's been a yeah, great entertainment. Didn't Dale Stain perhaps rather mischievously say that he prefers the PSL to the IPL? He's, he's rode back on that a bit this morning. He said his quotes were taken out of context. But I thought what he said was quite interesting. And, I, and obviously, he might have been taken out of context, but there is probably some truth in it that the kind of the whole spectacle around the IPL means it's about more than just the cricket. And that isn't the same in PSL, where it's largely about the cricket and everything else is just additional. Uh, I think that seems like a perfectly reasonable point to make, but albeit quite a brave one, given some of the, uh, the passions involved in, in that particular debate. The problem for saying there is it wasn't taken out of context. And we know this because it's a YouTube video. It wasn't just reported quotes. It's just an interview you can watch. Um, and everything that was quoted, Stain did say, I watched it yesterday. The reaction to what he said was completely mad. Does he, does he not? He doesn't have an IPL deal for this year. Is that right? Uh, and some people are saying, like, oh, that's the reason he said it now. But I think he's always been pretty public about, you know, not liking these 
media engagements and that sort of thing. Uh, I remember doing a, a World Cup media day for the 2019 World Cup uh, where, you know, you're doing all these sorts of challenges and stuff with the players. It's kind of like a bit of fun, but also you can imagine it's not what they're huge on doing when we're getting their heads right for a global tournament. And he, out of all the players, I think, looked the most unhappy to be there. Um, you know, we know he's sort of like a laid-back guy in general uh, in terms of, you know, what he likes to do outside of cricket, the, the surfing, the, you know, extreme sports, that kind of thing. And I think acting. He's in a film, isn't he? He's in an Adam Sandler he, film. He, he, is, he is in the Adam Sandler film, Blended. Yeah, uh, I'm glad we finally got to mention that on the podcast. He gets pumped back over his head by a nine-year-old, which... Uh, I don't know if that's affected his IPL deal for this year, but um, but but yeah, I think I think that it's he, he yeah he he's not doing it out of any sort of a uh, frustration he hasn't been picked up this year. I think that yeah, it's genuine how he feels. And I think it's yes, yeah, fair enough. There have been a couple more T20Is between Australia and New Zealand since we last recorded. Uh, overnight, Australia won their first game of the series. Claire Maxwell hit seventy or thirty-one to help Australia to two hundred and six. For Ashton Agar took six for thirty. Um, to see New Zealand fall well short. I think Agar is um, quite an odd one. I feel, Joe, we had that conversation a couple of weeks ago about English players not getting picked up in the IPL. I feel like if we were Australian, he'd be someone that we mentioned. His, um, his T20I record is, is really, really good. Average of just 19, economy of just, just over seven from about 30 games. Um, so obviously space for conventional fingers, finger spinners in T20 cricket. And I think that from you know, the point of view of Australia's balance in T20 cricket they would be so much better if Agar was a slightly better batsman it's just him batting at seven is just one position too high I feel and they kind of need him there to get all their bowling in um, yeah for, for, for me though sorry the, I know Agar bowled well yeah but, but Maxwell's innings was, was was the gem uh he's not been hitting them too well recently uh I think he said after the game that he was sort of struggling to hit them as a right-hander so he'd have a go as a left-hander for a bit and just absolutely nailed three switch hits uh, and then was seeing it perfectly fine. Hit 28 runs off one Jimmy Nisham over, including smashing a stadium chair to bits. Uh, just punched a hole right through it with a, with a six into the stands. Um, so yeah, that was a dig the hearts out of that, if, if you fancy. Um, and Ben, what's your moment of the week? So my moment of the week is the a historic one, actually. It's the first time a non-England test match has been broadcast on free-to-air TV in the UK. Uh, this was only announced yesterday when Free Sports announced that they had uh, got the deal for, to show all of Afghanistan and Zimbabwe's home matches for the next three years. And that started with uh, an Afghanistan-Zimbabwe test match, which is on right now, but not for much longer, uh, Afghanistan at 86 for seven and that's in danger of finishing within two days just like the last game but it's it's been a, it's been a, a good watch though even though it's going to be a, a short one there's been some some good stuff on show Afghanistan's uh, Ibrahim Zadran who's 19 years old batted well in the in the second innings uh, Victor Naichi for uh, the Zimbabwe looks a handy bowler um, but it's just great to have more free-to-air cricket in general and there will be some really big names or big teams that you can watch in I think India Pakistan, Australia, uh, all have games against those teams at home lined up. And also there'll be the possibility of an Ireland test match at some point on free to TV in the UK, which is really great as well. Um, yeah, that's great. And uh, some more good news, I guess. Yeah, we should just talk about the test itself. Um, yeah, it's good, looking pretty likely to finish within two days. Afghanistan scored 131 in the first innings. Zimbabwe scored... 215 responses, and Afghanistan are currently 88 for seven, still 31 behind uh, Zimbabwe's 
total. There was one thing that came through just before we started recording that uh, was too late to be my moment of the week, but I think it's worth mentioning anyway, that not to announce that Haseeb Hamid will be their vice captain uh, in the Canton Championship in 2021 and their captain in the Royal London One Day Cup, which is which is excellent news and, and good for good for Hamid. That is it for today's show. Thanks, Joe. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, Phil. Thanks for listening, folks. This has been the Wisdom Cricket Weekly Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, tell your friends. And why not leave us a five-star review in the podcast app to show your appreciation. We'll be back next week. Cheers. Podcast Network.